Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to live my life, putting purpose over profit. Too many fallen soldiers, too many slain prophets. Eyes on the prize, yeah, I gotta watch it. Agents amongst us, get your hand out my pocket. I'm sick with the pet. Brothers and sisters are sick in the pet. Oppressed by the man, attacked by the clan. America's plan, depression sets in. People becoming so hopeless. Said we can't breathe, they still choke us. They put the body cam on, it's either turn off or out of focus. Yeah, another death, another life. They pull the trigger, no thinking twice. Cops be wildin', the killing youth. The new Jim Crow, a different noose. It's the beast, it's the beast, mark of the beast. Cease and desist, increase the peace. Move in silence, don't make a sound. But when they come, stand your ground. R.I.P. to all the martyrs. Say your prayer, Heavenly Father. Black lives matter, black lives matter. Yeah. Hey. All right, everybody, welcome back to another live episode of the Creative Gore. And we got a good one today. Professor, how you doing, sir? I'm doing well, good brother. How you doing? I feel like I'm becoming an old head because when people ask me how you doing, I'm like, you know what? I'm upright. I'm still standing. There's breath in my body. Either that or the world's so crazy, you just have to always give God thanks. So uh, I'm well, brother. How about you? Amen. God is good. God is great. So I just appreciate him. You know, especially when we thank him for food. So I, I just love the Lord. <laughs> I love the Lord. And, and if loving the Lord was wrong, Josh would not <laughs> want to be right. <laughs> I hear that, man. It's good to see you, brother. Absolutely. So I'm excited today as we were talking about backstage. So for just for a little, you know, anecdotal story for everyone. So Josh, at a certain point, did not know who Dr. Umar Johnson was. He's not really a mainstream person unless you are unless he's saying things like this on a platform like The Breakfast Club or saying things like he says on a platform like The Breakfast Club, right? So it was both Professor Israel and lovely Amanda who introduced me to Dr. Umar. And, and each time, and the first video was actually the message to black women. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. that, that's what, that, it's kind of like Umar has a sound effect where everything he says is like, oh, or mm, yeah, yeah, hey, what, what can I say to that? So... It's it's great. It's it has come full circle. We can actually talk about this here now and talk about his comments on the Breakfast Club. So, what did you think when you and Amanda watched it? Yeah, first and foremost, thank you for letting me know that he had a new um, Breakfast Club interview because I think this was his fifth one, um, and we had saw the other ones before, but we weren't aware of this new one. So, shout out to you for putting us on because um, that would have flew underneath the radar for a little bit. So we got we got a chance to take a look, and you know, I think it's. Um, It's timely. It's timely for sure. And I don't know how scheduling goes with the Breakfast Club and things of that nature. But usually when he's usually when he's on the circuit is either for him pushing a book or, you know, responding to certain things that are happening in real time. Um, But it was great to have his perspective, um, because for me, you know, I think it's about having thought leaders in a portfolio. So when I think about having thought leaders in portfolio, I don't want to have my portfolio. It's just like stocks and bonds, right? You don't want to have too many stocks of the same type. You want to diversify your bonds, diversify your stocks. And for me, when I think about thought leaders and I think about my thought leader portfolio, I need to have a va- uh, um, like various folks, a variety of folks um, in that portfolio that can inform my thinking. Now, again, like education, if you have critical thinking skills, you can question things, whether it's the frame, whether it's the approach, um, whether it's the content. But I really want to make sure that folks don't write him off because I think a lot of folks, they might be put put off by his provocative nature in the sense of he's going to say what he wants to say. Mm-hmm. And he means what he says. Absolutely. Um, and he might use language that folks don't agree with. He might use um, uh, a tone that folks don't agree with or are not able to receive. Um, so what I don't like is when folks just automatically uh, rule out someone's message or throw away someone's message because they don't necessarily agree with the messenger or the messenger is not perfect in their eyes. So it might get in the way of a message that might not be perfect, but has some purpose and has some meaning in it. So it has some teeth. So sitting there watching him on The Breakfast Club in conjunction 
for example, they just had T.D. Jakes there. T.D. Jakes was on The Breakfast Club. So you have a person like T.D. Jakes who could bring that, that word and bring that wisdom and knowledge of the divine in many spaces. Mm-hmm. But then you also have a person like Umar um, who can bring that raw, that real, and maybe connect with people that T.D. Jakes might not necessarily connect with or at least connect with another part of a person that T.D. Jakes connects with. Right. So I was really appreciative of seeing his... Um, his interview because again he 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 pulls no punches he gets straight to the point um he's not worried about corporate dollars so to speak right so he can say whatever he wants to say he doesn't have to worry about anyone muzzling him or putting a muzzle on his mouth so he can't speak his mind so when we sat down and watched it it's always good to get people who don't have much to lose in the sense of a a corporate job or um you know a number of different pieces where you can't really say what you want to say Right. You can't really go all the way in the way you want to go in. Um, folks who are not afraid of being canceled, so to speak, right? Uh, who can just speak their mind. So when we sat there and we listened, you know, he brought up a lot of great points. And again, there might be some spaces where I don't 100% agree. There might be some spaces where I might have approached it differently because of the spaces I'm in. But on the Breakfast Club, you're supposed to spit that real. And he did exactly that. All the topics talking about police brutality. And, you know, it's sad. And unfortunate, but every time you play the song, the intro song, the lyrics become truer and truer and truer and more relevant and more present um, in the moments that we're in. And, you know, he's talking about police brutality. He's talking about politics. He's talking about black community. He's talking or lack thereof in certain spaces. He's talking about power. He's talking about privilege. He's talking about COVID-19. He's talking about education, all these pieces. And what I like about him is that he is an example of a conscious brother, Mm. right, who is also a Pan-Africanist who also has a psychology background, who also is an educational institution, so understands schooling versus education, who understands um, special education or the exploitation of Black bodies via special education. Um, there's, so, there's so many pieces there. And you know it's easy for someone to just sit there and not digest everything or to to have his message get lost in the messenger. Right. Um, but I was very appreciative of all the points that he brought up. Like it or love it, agree or disagree, I'm appreciative of the conversation and the platform that he has. Absolutely. I think one of the first things I said to you as soon as I, I watched it is that it reminded me of a Farrakhan, Minister Farrakhan, but his delivery, as you said, is a little bit more emphatic. So mm-hmm. Farrakhan, Minister Farrakhan had that ability to balance it in terms of this giving you straight bars of facts that you is irrefutable. We get we can all see uh, the see it in observation. I, that's what I would consider an observational truth, something that we can all observe and see in real time. So he was mm-hmm. able to point out those things and then also be balanced in his delivery, like you said. And Dr. Umar is he, you know, he I think he epitomizes whether he's from Philly or not. He epitomizes that Philly spirit. Oh, yeah. He's from Philly. And, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I'm in these Philly streets, mm-hmm. you know, Literally and figuratively, you know, I'm in these streets. But nah, um, I had an opportunity to meet him when I was working for Swarthmore College. I was doing admissions work and I was visiting schools in my territory. One of my territories was New Jersey. Mm. Um, so like northern New Jersey. So I was out in Newark area, I believe. And he was giving a speech or a talk at one of the local churches. And I went and got a chance to hear him talk about education, et cetera. Took a picture with the brother and everything. Um uh, shout out to the Olivers who gave me uh, one of his books, his first book, um, Psychoacademic Holocaust, which mm. really talks about, um, you know, black boys and special education, how folks are using and exploiting the system for them, all those pieces. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's great to be connected with him. And also we're connected to some other spaces because I believe I'm not going to put his business out in the street. But one of the institutions that I was affiliated with, his daughter attended. Oh, OK. And you can't tell me that's not his daughter because it looks just like the book. <laughs> I'm like, I know who your father is. I know who your father is, for sure. Um, but no, in terms of, you know, just having him speak out and talk about a number of different things, um, looking at the growth and trajectory of where he's come from, because, mm-hmm. you know, when he first came out, you know, sometimes you have to make a splash, right? right? And sometimes that means you have to be very, very, very provocative. And because you're being very provocative in order for you to go viral, Sometimes folks might attack your credit, uh, your credibility or your credentials. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks have seen his credentials and, you know, they can argue whether or not he truly has six degrees. Or, I'm not interested in all that because at the end of the day, who bestows degrees? Man, in a lot of different ways, right? So when we talk about certain yes. things, you know, it's all relative, right? Um, so let's not argue about certain things and get caught up in the semantics. But the stuff that he does present, 
um, in the powerful way in which he does. You know, when you talk about Louis Farrakhan, there are times when Farrakhan is just like, mm, 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 and then he might turn up right. at a certain point. Umar is always there. Yes, <laughs> he's kind of always on that turn up. Part he's on that. He he's on that. Level. He's on his Meek Mill, right? He's on his Meek Mill. He's on that Philly flow, Meek Mill. Um, so you know, and I appreciate that mm-hmm. because some folks don't respond to the you know you have to and you know and you you gotta make sure some folks don't respond to that. Right. Other folks who are about that life want to hear somebody who reminds them of how they talk in a conversation of they arguing about whether or not LeBron's better than Michael Jordan. Yes. That's how they, that, that's what they need. They need that type of energy. That's Stephen um, A. Smith, so with that being said, he brought that energy to the breakfast club as he always does. And what I appreciate is that he presses those brothers there too, to think a little bit more so. And I feel like people like him and Dame Dash, they've pressed people like Charlemagne the God, and I'm sure they've had an impact on him to change his perspective in certain ways or to push him outside of that corporate space where he can actually speak a little bit more so, as opposed to, not, I don't want to say shucking and jiving, but tap dancing a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it goes back to what you said before about diversifying your thought part portfolio, which I think is brilliant. You're definitely going to coin that one, right? Shout out to Level <laughs> One Enterprises. Absolutely. But to be honest, I think about that just like music. So if Mm -hmm. you think about your music portfolio, those are essentially thoughts. They're speaking to you, the audience, and your mind is a powerful thing. So when I think about my music portfolio, I think about the same thing because I like to have different type of music in there. So I don't have the same type of music over and over and I only get stuck in this thought loop, which I think could be very, very dangerous for our people, but also very profitable for the powers that be. So I think that I did appreciate what he said about the the five headed oppressor. I thought that was interesting, and then that mm. gave that gave credence to the like a plan of action, what could be done. And I know you have a, a lot to say about education. I can't wait for that. For but for those who didn't hear, he has a five headed oppressor for black people essentially in America and their development and liberation. Number one is miseducation, and I'm sure Professor Israel can talk about that. Economic castration which is something we've talked about before with people like Sangu and Ulysses previously. So I think that's, that's also very important. Mass incarceration. We've, we've talked about that plenty of times on the creative board. Gentrification, which is a trend in whatever trendy area you're in, an up and coming area that you're in and access to wealth, which I thought were three, you know, very powerful points. Which is beautiful. So all those things are interconnected. Don't get it twisted. They might be separate things, but they're all interconnected. And, you know, some folks might say, what's the difference between economic castration and access to wealth? Well, economic castration, an example of that is Tulsa, Oklahoma, Black Wall Street, where folks burn that, not folks, excuse me, white folks and government officials burn that down, right? So that's economic castration because folks already built up wealth. They already were self-sufficient and self-sustaining. They already had their Black-owned businesses. They were thriving, and they burnt that down to the ground economic castration, you have to rebuild. But you can't really rebuild because you also have this problem where you don't have access to wealth. Mm. Not only did you rob me of my economic wealth that I built myself, you're now making barriers for me to actually gain that wealth back. So those two things work together to the point where you're not moving at all. So you've got pushback and then now you can't even advance. Then you have other pieces connected to that, such as redlining or housing discrimination. Mm -hmm. Then you, you tie that into miseducation. Or you tie that into um, mass incarceration. All those things are connected, right? You talk about the school to prison pipeline. You talk about whether or not um, the folks who the folks who educate our children, who look like me and you, right? Whether or not they have our best interest in mind. Whether or not the information that they're putting inside of our children will benefit them, liberate them, mm. or enslave them. So when we think about all these pieces, um, they all work together, hand in hand. And it's difficult to the point where people get in a state of learned helplessness. Or when we get to the whole building of the black community later on, I want to speak to it too. You know, some folks might throw in the towel or get to the space where they're like, you know what, I'm never going to identify as black. If I have the privilege of passing as white, I might not even identify as black. Because if the name of the game is to survive, mm. not only can I survive by passing for white, but I might also thrive in this capitalistic racist society. So all those pieces together intertwined and connected, right? Um, just further go to show how the cards are stacked against us. And that's not to say do nothing. 
it's just in, in order for you to fight your oppressor, you have to first name and identify them. Mm. Like, for example, you got this whole Floyd Mayweather, Logan Paul fight coming up, right? Like, can you imagine if you step into the ring and you know who you were fighting? Right? Can you make an informed decision? You're going to take a bout against somebody you have no idea who you're fighting? Which requires some, strategy, absolutely. Exactly. So if somebody was like, yo, Josh, yo, we're going to give you $50,000 tomorrow to step into the ring. You're like, all right, bet. Who am I fighting? We can't tell you. It's a surprise. That's, 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 that's a hard gamble. Because it could be somebody who's like, you know, some soft dude out here who don't know how to throw hands. Or it could be Money Mayweather. <laughs> I don't think $50,000 is worth you stepping in the ring with Money May. Could you imagine if it was Mike Tyson? Like, oh, oh we, we're going to have to renegotiate. Oh, bro. <laughs> no, 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 please. Like, no, no. Because, again, if you don't know who your oppressor is, you don't know who your enemy is, you might be throwing punches in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. You might not be prepared and trained to do whatever. You might not know their strategy in order for you to prepare with your offense. You might not know the type of defense they have. So when you think about economic castration, you think about mass incarceration, miseducation, you know, all those pieces. It's important for you to know how these systems function and work against us. Absolutely. Because he also brought up uh, the aspect of being disorganized as a people. And all of these reasons lead to the, you know, not being organized, the disorganization. And, and that's and that's the piece that I want to talk about a little bit, too, because I agree with him to a certain extent. And then there's another there's another piece that I would throw out there, mm. because I think it's not so much a matter of organization, because to be honest, I think a lot of us know how to organize. We have organizing skills. You know, doggone well, if once COVID is like over, first of all, it's already happening now. But when COVID is over, if folks want to throw together a party, we know how to get certain people in certain spots at certain times to have a good time. Exactly. So literally, if you wanted to host a party, say you wanted to host a party for 100, 200, 300 heads, you can make that happen. That's organization. Here's the problem. What do we do with our organization? Mm. So that's the priorities piece. So I, I would make an argument that is not necessarily the organization or lack thereof, right? It's more so what are the priorities? What are we prioritizing? We might organize, but we're organizing to go to Coachella. We're organizing to go stand in line to get the new iPhone or new Jordans. Mm. We're doing all that organization, right? However, if we had different priorities, we could use our organizational skills for something that's actually going to help us liberate ourselves. The other piece is identity politics. Mm. Some folks don't identify as being black. Mm -hmm. Some folks don't identify as being a part of the struggle. Some folks don't identify with being a part of poverty. Some folks don't identify with being a part of those folks who are marginalized or come from marginalized backgrounds. And in some cases, they're able to do that because of either the affluence they've attained, however way they've attained it, or because they don't want to, you know, get their hands dirty, so to speak, or sacrifice or, you know, put their livelihoods at risk. So some folks are not willing to sacrifice. So it's this whole piece of identity politics that further separate us. So we're organized, mm -hmm. but some folks don't want to be a part of that organization, number one, right? And I think it was a great point because Charlemagne was like, well, what are you talking about organ organization? You know, black folks are not a monolith. And Umar was like, duh, yeah, no, no one group is. So for you to say, nah, you know, we can't organize, we can't organize. No one group is a monolith. Mm -hmm. So when you think about organization, where are the priorities, identity politics, and whether or not you want to use that organizational skills to move the collective forward, or if there are so many factions within the group of organized people, whether it's liberal, whether it's Republican, whether it's Democrat, whether it's moderate, whether it's independent, all these pieces where we can't really identify as one. You can identify as a collective without being a monolith, mm -hmm. right? If you have a family, you're all not the same person but you're under that same family tree. Can we at least identify as Yisraels out this month? Right. Can we? Or are you going to say, well, you know, bro, you from Harlem. I'm over here in Newark. We can't really rock, bro. Like, so I would say it's a, it's a bigger piece than just us not being organized. It's about priorities. And it's also about identity. Absolutely. Cause he, he even mentioned some priorities that we have in our community, such as 
when it comes to organizing things, if it was a party, like you said, or perhaps a basketball camp or a sports camp, anything like that, and all of which are great, right? But there's other things that we can, you know, come as a collective too. And these are all things that we can see that there's an issue in the world. It's just like, hey, I'm, it's like, I guess I, I'm like, I'm ready whenever y'all are. Absolutely. And here's the thing. We have governing bodies that already show it, right? So you have, you think about fraternities and sororities. You think about bloods and crips. You think about churches, synagogues, mosques, all these folks, right? Those are organized bodies. Again, what are the priorities? And there are some churches that are better than others. There are some churches who identify as, you know, black liberation theologists who really are about liberating black people. Mm -hmm. There's folks who have womanist theology who are really about thinking about black women in particular, right? And how they are free through, um, you know, religious doctrine, et cetera. So all these pieces, we have organized bodies. What are we doing with the manpower, woman power, if you will, mm -hmm. um, to move us forward? Or are we just doing pop and circumstance and everyone's just parading and acting like everything's cool? So it's good to, you know, call these things into question. Um, but also let's expand that conversation about what are we doing with the organization that we have? Because there's a number of different organizations that people come for all the time. Some folks might come for the National Urban League. Some folks might come from the National Advancement Association of Colored People. Some folks might come for the United Negro College Fund. What are y'all doing with your funds, et cetera? Some people might come for all these people. Some folks might come for HBCUs, whatever the case may be. There are some organizations and organized places that we can pull from if we have a common goal or a North Star. Mm. But what is the purpose of our organization? What is the priorities? How do we identify and align? Absolutely. So I hope one of the purpose will be to recreate another Tulsa and then even have it as a system where that can be replicatable all over the United States, possibly the world. I think that would be a great start. You can you can look at it as the same way you would look at a, uh, a franchise. It requires a certain amount of startup fund. You can have investors, you can have donors. And then it can be replicated. And I think things like that, I think that will serve us incredibly well. And that's the important piece. But that gets also back to the whole notion of not only mass incarceration, because we're losing so many people mm. to mass incarceration. And for and here's the thing. And I'm sure, you know, folks feel the same way. Many folks feel the same way. But you know how profitable the cannabis industry is becoming? Absolutely. And you know how, how marginalized we as people of color, particularly black folks, are in the cannabis industry? And do you know how many non-violent offenders for marijuana who are still locked behind jail cells are still there and not being let out? Like that needs to be addressed. How are we making money off of this industry of something that was illegal, has become illegal in certain spaces, still legal, um, illegal in other places, but the folks who are locked up, disproportionately black and brown folks for non-violent drug offenses, right? Let them out. Let them out. You can make all your money, but you can't let these folks out. First and foremost, if you want to talk about um, avoiding recidivism in terms of people going back to prison, if you let them out and give them a job in cannabis, first of all, they already got job experience. Yes. That's how they got locked up in the first place, right? So my resume is, yo, I was already slinging. So now I can sling for, for legally? Like, legally, I can... It's ridiculous. So you have that piece, right? And then you have the other piece, which is, you know, miseducation. What, what are you being taught in schools? You know, Umar was talking about, you know, going back to trade schools and going back to vocations and things of that nature. All that is true. All that is true. However, however, when you think about the things that folks are being bombarded with mm -hmm. and the identity, the identity that they may be developing or not developing, that lets them know that the situation, that the way it is, it shouldn't be. And it hasn't always been this way. I'll tell you like this. I teach a 10th grade course and... There's certain names I drop that folks don't know. And I'm like, hold up. How don't you know these people? There's certain things I talk about folks don't know. To drive it home even more so, folks don't really know how grotesque, gruesome, and vile slavery was. Mm. Because there's been so much stuff that's been changed in textbooks. Where folks are talking about migrant workers. They had some cooks. All these things. Folks were happy. They were employed. Where they do that at? So you have some textbooks, some conversations that don't really highlight the, the disastrous impact and actual experience of enslaved people. Mm. So much so that folks don't think it's that deep. They're like, oh, people. So again, if that's where your mind is, the same way for us when we were growing up, if we thought our experience started as slaves, as enslaved people, 
then we don't have any frame of reference of how we were before that happened. We don't have a frame of reference of royalty. We don't have a frame of reference of the continent of Africa, let alone any allegiance to it, right? Just really keeping those, and keep, keeping those things in mind. So the miseducation piece is really, really deep. And that's really, honestly, the only reason why I'm in education. It ain't for the money. I'll tell you that much. Absolutely, because that is incredibly powerful, especially for developing minds. And to your point, you have so much history of wealth in Africa of people who were black, right? And the history goes back to behind you as well, right? So mm -hmm. in terms of Egypt, and if you look at uh, a map of, for whatever reason, there's a, a, uh, a hieroglyph that had a essentially a legend of people and where they're from. So Egyptians or any, you know, any other era like uh, Middle Eastern, and then you would have essentially black people and they were Egyptians. They were the elite at the time. So this is interesting mm -hmm. that, you know, this is And then out. again, no, absolutely. And to your point, when you think about education now, usually where, where do you start? A lot of times folks start in Greek, Greek, like Greek uh, origin. And they're really thinking about Greek mythology and all these other pieces. Or when you think about the English canon, it's very Eurocentric. There's no other pieces that are really introduced that represents who we are as African people. To, mm -hmm. to, so when, when it comes to like racial and ethnic identity development, um, we're, 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 we're stagnant at best in terms of developing that because nothing's really sparked our interest or there's not that one teacher or that one book or that one film that's really like got into our psyche and asked us, how can we learn more about who we are? And that's a problem. We shouldn't have to ask those questions. There should be educators who reflect us and there should be more folks who are able to shepherd that process and be brokers of that. Um, but it's difficult. It definitely is difficult in the current climate that we have. Absolutely. And Clodis says we were discussing the show them, which is on Amazon prime. And realize that some of the horrific scenes may have been misconstructed as being exaggerated when accurate depiction. Oh, talk about that. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I literally, as a young kid, say no cap. I literally, right, was having a conversation with one of my students today. And she was like, oh, have you watched the show Them? I said, yeah, my wife and I, we watched it. She was like, yeah. Like some of that stuff, I was like, this is crazy. I was like, but that's how it was. And she's like, yeah, that's crazy, right? And she's like, and, and in some cases... Like, this still happening now. I was like, exactly. Mm. Exactly. So one of the brilliant scenes in them, for folks who haven't seen it, is that it it, it goes back to almost like um, colonial times, probably. Colonial times, you know, probably right after, I want to say, probably after emancipation, probably during Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of it was like around, a, well, around colonial times, right? And... It seemed like folks who were settling and starting to do settlers in certain spaces, blah, blah, you know, all these Europeans, et cetera. Um, and it showed racism in that space. And then it takes them to present day at that time in Watts or in Compton, in Compton, mm -hmm. and really talking about how these things are still happening. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And the student was like, oh, y'all, it's crazy how, you know, folks were like banding together and saying black folks can't live here. I was like, yep, that's how folks did. And then when they couldn't do it, in a way that was like understood, right? De facto in practice, they did it de jure by law in the sense of redlining. They started to do redlining, literally drawing red lines around spots on maps that would devalue certain spaces because black and brown folks live there, right? So it's just crazy. And a lot of folks think these things is fictitious. It's not, mm. it's real life, it's real life. Absolutely. And Chloe brought up a wonderful point. And she was saying that the aspect of and spoiler alert for those who may watch it, the aspect of uh, ghosts and whatnot in the show adds even more trauma. And it, it creates that connection to what you were saying to invalidate what was actually happening. So they're, they're viewing it with a, a fictional lens as opposed to being able to separate the fictional from the reality. And unfortunately, for those who understood the reality, it was kind of like a trip down trauma lane. So it was incredibly traumatic. And for those who didn't understand, it was more about being entertained. So hopefully, I'm, I'm glad you had, you know, comments like that from people who watched it. I just hope that people who also, get, you know, who consume this type of content actually take away what's actually being, you know, presented. Absolutely, because that goes back to the whole piece of, 
trauma and how we experience trauma and how there's a tax or a constant burden mm. on people of color, particularly black folks in America, when it comes to traumatic events. It seems like we're living in a constant state of trauma. For those folks who've seen the movie Groundhog Day, waking up at the same time, doing the same thing. That's us when it comes to trauma. Mm. You know, Dr. Joy DeGruy always talks about it in her book, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, right? Epigenetics, right? Having trauma literally in our DNA. So I think about that scene in terms of, you know, these are traumatic traumatic things that we live with that exist in who we are that are generational. Mm. Generational. You talk about generational curses, right? You talk about all these pieces that we're, we wrestle with and sit sit with. Uh, ghosts and what they're representative of, or these these demons that we really literally wrestle with in the in the li- in the literal in the in the, in the, in the figurative, uh, but mo- most mostly in the spiritual realm. Exactly. Um, so just really think about all these things that are just burdens and taxes on us. Absolutely, because it's it's a very important aspect to understand what entertainment is when you consume it, because unfortunately we have a lot of instances where people will view content and view it as the gospel without being in tune with the gospel, right? They'll look at it as the gospel and be like, Oh, that's why things are like this, because, you know, this is, this is how you, for, you know, speaking as an outsider, this is how you guys are. Look, look. And then I see it, you know, when I go on social media or any other type of media or sometimes in person, and then you have a, you know, like a recency bias type of thing. Absolutely. And that's the that's that's the whole piece, though. So like with this new generation that's coming up, you, you have mostly young folks who are in school, they're Generation Z. And then after that, you have the uh, alpha generation. Mm. And, you know, you're starting to see all their um, themes and trends of who they are as a, as a cohort, as a group, as a generation. And you realize that they have so much access to information. The problem is because it's a gift and a curse, right? The gift is that they have so much access to information more access than you and I even have, right? More access than anybody from the Generation X, uh, baby boomers, um, you know, they have more access. However, they might not have the appropriate lens to decipher what things they should consume Mm. and which things they should definitely throw away because it's garbage, false, fictitious, problematic, whatever the case may be. So developing that muscle, of how to discern what's right and what's wrong. Some folks just to get the information, they might repost it. You know, folks might just be subscribing to certain things and it's and it's wild out here. There's a mm-hmm. it's there's there's literally, literally as we speak, a battle for the hearts and minds of young folks. So when you think about it, there are folks who are um gaming on Twitch, there are folks who are doing YouTube tutorials and all this other stuff, but in between, they're rec- recruiting pro, uh, people for uh uh, uh neo neo Nazism, right? You have white supremacist culture. You have white nationalists, folks who are like really recruiting through these platforms because that's where folks spend their time. They have other folks like Dr. Boyce Watkins who's on Twitch and he's talking about stocks and he's giving out that stuff, those gems while he's gaming. So that's it's, it's a gift and a curse, right? Mm. Some folks use it and pervert it and just very problematic with it. Other folks use it with purpose and intention uh, for good and for positivity. So it's just things that we continue to wrestle with. A thousand percent. So as a great transition, perhaps we can discuss our plans of action to help liberate and develop the black community, because I think, as you said before, it would be most beneficial to have a a system in place that is, you know, inspired by Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was self-sufficient, which is, let's be honest, that's the real reason why it was burned, because there was a group of black people who who separated themselves from white people and I'm not I'm not sure about every other race but mostly white people and they were able to become self-sufficient on their own and they didn't require all the things that capitalism provided they were able to essentially create their own Wakanda. Mhm mhm. Um few things I would say that one of the things that I picked up on from Dr. Omar Johnson earlier on when I was first introduced to him was this whole notion of political maturity mm. or political immaturity and understand how we as a people are not necessarily the most politically inclined in certain spaces in terms of understanding the full system. And that's not just a knock or an indictment of black people. That's Americans, period. Because as much as we talk about certain things, We're not really taught civics that much anymore. Mm. Folks don't really understand it that much anymore. Some folks are low to to sleep to the point where they're like, ah, whatever. 
It don't matter. I'm not going to vote. I'm not doing this. Whatever the case may be. Their prerogative. However, I think it's important to understand that all the choices, as we've talked about before, all the choices that we make have some type of political implications. Something. Where we spend our dollars, where we choose to live, where we choose to send our kids to school, where we choose to work, um, where we choose to um, build a family, right? Purchase a home, all those things. Um, and it's important for us to understand how all these systems are connected. It's important for us to understand um, how we can use the power that we do have. And then it gets back to the whole organization piece. Realizing and understanding that we have the power, mm. we have the know-how. I mean, there was such a thing called the Underground Railroad, right. where folks organized and led themselves to slavery, shout to Harriet Tubman. Um, but at the same time, what happened? What made the Underground Railroad so successful? The North Star. The North Star. They had a guiding light. What is our guiding light? What are our guiding principles when it comes to building this community? When it comes to making sure that we're looking out for one another in our best interest? When it comes to understanding that we can stand together and sacrifice something, realizing that we have a lot to gain. And if we work together, we can do it. So it's just really about starting to understand not only political systems, but starting to understand who we are as a people. Mm. And understand where we come from, like where we really come from, how powerful we are, what's in our DNA, and it's not just trauma. That's there. But resilience, grit, all the stuff that scholars are starting to write about, we've been had that. So you're probably trying to do a dissertation off of our life stories. That's our autobiography. Forget your dissertation. You know what I mean? So that being said, Folks need to put their money where their mouth is. Folks need to be about that life. Because if you could if you could bang in other spaces, you should bang in this political space. That's how you can really take back communities. I mean, that's how gangs really started. Right. That's how gangs really started. There's, I mean, we have models. Look at the Black Panther Party, right? We have models of how we can take our hoods back, how we can take our communities back. Legally, legally, there are ways to do that. So it's just a matter of us, again, priorities. What mm. are our priorities and how do we identify and align our interests moving forward? That's right. That's the key. And Clodis says also the type of information is skewed due to the algorithm, which creates these pockets of information, you know, demographically curated thousand percent. Do you mm -hmm. think the lack of political awareness is because people may believe that corporations run the U.S. instead of government? Thus, the lack of faith in politicians and their impact on everyday life. And just to add a aspect to that great point, that great point, Clo, the fact that there's such a uh, congenial relationship between the politicians and those corporations. Absolutely. I mean, you have to question and you have to critique the capitalistic structure when it comes to politics. Additionally, as Umar was alluding to, and I always talk about this in the work that I do. We cannot confuse individuals and institutions. We can't. So again, one of the examples that he gave in, on a breakfast club interview was like, folks identified Donald Trump as being racist. Mm -hmm. He was the face of racism. And that's it. He was a scapegoat. Is he racist? Absolutely. Does he exhibit and operate in racism? Absolutely. Is he the system? Of racism. No, there is an institution of racism, but folks looked at him as the golden child of racism. No, America produced a Donald Trump. Right. So let's condemn the institution of America. Let's talk about that. Let's see how we got here and why we're still here. Um, one of the things I often say in my line of work, you know, when I'm doing presentations, Trump had put out a cease and desist letter to all federal organizations saying, banning diversity training. And he said that the diversity training should be banned because it's anti-American propaganda. So I engaged in a thought experiment. I said, let's, 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 let's test this out. Let's test this out. Maybe Trump's right. Maybe diversity, equity, and inclusion training is anti-American. Because let's think about what America is. Mm. What's the foundation of America? Another quote says that racism or race is race is the son of racism, not the father. Mm. Which means racism existed first. They said we need to have a system where we can be superior. How do we make that happen? So racism, race. You come up with your racist ideology, you have race to justify it. 
So when you think about these spaces, of course, you have to interrogate institutions such as America, mm. interrogate the government, which is inherently, inherently racist, no matter what individuals are in it, because the institution is racist. Right. So you can have a lot of individuals in there who are not racist, and we see that. And they're fighting hard. They're swimming against the current. It's difficult, though. Sometimes you, you have a strong, strong stroke, but then it might be that huge wave that takes you back. So just really think about those pieces. All those things are connected. So some folks might lose lack in faith because they forget that politicians are not miracle workers. They're people too. And in some cases, there are people who could be bought. There are people who might cash in their own social clout and status, livelihood for the masses, mm. right? Because they have job security, et cetera. They have all these benefits. Um, and then they also forget that, you know, it's, it's an individual. And that's just a blip on the radar when it comes to the institution. So all those pieces are together. And then you lose trust. So again, how many of us are running for running for office? How many of us are in involved in not primaries that are national elections, but what about your regional and your local ones? There are primaries coming up soon in certain spaces. Think about your district attorney, etc. Right? So really thinking about who gets elected in these spaces. So there's a lot of pieces there. So it goes back to what Umar was talking about: the miseducation piece. Mass incarceration, you know, come with the capitalistic society. So you're thinking about the economic castration and you think about access to wealth. Everyone's jockeying for position. So there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle on this huge, you know, chessboard, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, yeah. All those things. Absolutely. The cosmic chessboard, because, you know, he had some very interesting comments about the Black Caucus and, you know, and President Obama, which is also very interesting. So everyone, you know, reveres Obama as being a great inspiration, which he was and is, right? Mm -hmm. But some people do have their own perspective of what he actually did for Black people, specifically, not necessarily America. And I can I can understand that because, you know, that was one of the the one of the things that made him an inspiration because he identified with being Black. And sometimes some people in that position who also look like him may not do that. So that, that was a very proud moment, of course. But at the end of the day, it is America and politics is a, an incredibly uh, competitive game, let's say. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, it just goes to show, you can't put all your trust into a sole politician. Mm. You have to think about the institutions. right? And the same way you think about corporations, right? You might have a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Do you think that CEO is calling all the shots? No. What about the shareholders? What about the board? They have voices too. So when you think about the president of the United States, you think the president of the United States is calling all the shots? No. Absolutely not. He's essentially the chairman. He's the CEO. There you go. There you go. So it's, it's important for folks to understand what can we control? Where do we have power? And how can we leverage the power that we do have in the places that we have access to and hopefully use that to, to expand our territory of influence? Um, and that's, that's, that's a long journey. There's some change that happens overnight in certain cases. If you get, if like lightning strikes and we're lucky mm. and we're fortunate and blessed, but there's, it's the politics of change takes a while. It takes a while. It does. And some people, sometimes may not have that patience as a you know eric killmonger so to speak and, absolutely and cd fam shout out to you he's been in the comments as well what about we renovate learning to cater to different learning styles because every single school teaches you how to become a worker bee instead of teaching create creativeness absolutely mm -hmm, absolutely and you know there's there's some schools that are doing that well um there are other schools who refuse refuse to do that but here's the thing about schools just like corporations, there's a market for everything. There's a market for everything. So there's some folks who might think just like you, CD fam, and there's other folks who might be like, nah, I'm good. Give me the traditional learning because that's what's going to get me to that C-suite level. And there's other folks like who are pushing against everything, everything. So folks are trying to introduce, you know, curriculum into the classroom that mm. lifts up marginalized voices and perspectives. Folks are like, what are you doing? This is not intellectual. This is not, I feel marginalized. I feel oppressed. I don't feel safe anymore. Is this school anymore? So again, like this battle, the battle for education right now is real. It's real. I'm talking about public and private sector. 
parochial, all those pieces. The battle for education continues and remains to be real. And folks are just out here, out here doing whatever they can to, you know, get corporate dollars for the spaces where they can, you know, those, those, uh, those charter schools, you know, and when it comes to education, again, a lot of folks are too, too focused on schooling, you know, <laughs> cogs in the machine as opposed to true education, because truth be told, it's becoming harder and harder to justify college education nowadays, mm. particularly for folks who don't have the funds and the affluence to, to afford it themselves. You mean to tell me I got to go into debt? And then when I graduate, all I'm going to have is that high price receipt and possibly not a job. Or oh, I'll put it to you this way. My middle school principal was talking about how, you know, some folks go to college and they essentially graduate with a mortgage payment without a house to live in. Oh, man, that's a because you're making metaphor. like that monthly student loan payment, which is akin to a mortgage. Yes. Yet you don't have a home to live in unless you're in the basement or the, the room of your, 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 your mom or your pops or whomever. It's crazy. Mm. So what is the return on investment when it comes to education? So it's, 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 it's real deep in the educational sector. And a lot of folks are really trying to argue about it. But again, the people of power and privilege are the ones who are trying to set the tone or the temperature, if you will. And there are some folks within, some individuals within the institution, myself included, who try to push in certain spaces. But alas, it's like, mm, nah, we good over here, fam. We're going to make sure that the institution stays the way that it has been because not many people are like you. They don't really look like you. You know, we have some other folks that we have to appease in order for us to stay standing. So again, institutions versus individuals is always that battle. Absolutely. Wonderful question, CD fam. And Claude says homeschooling is important. Absolutely. And Dr. Umar had a, a great, uh, essentially he was talking about the social infrastructure. So he had a great uh, a pillar of four, I believe, which was the education, the hospitals, the banks, and the supermarket. And I thought that was a, a wonderful way to talk about the social infrastructure that essentially uh, creates people's lives for them especially in our community. So I thought, I thought that was brilliant to talk about. And it, you know, I, I had to include it in my plan as well, because as you said, one of the most important things is the education, you know, we have the schools and universities. And I feel like he brought up a great point about talking about trade schools. So imagine if we had our own Tulsa slash Wakanda in, in, that, in that realm, right? We have our own community one of the most important infrastructures is going to be education, especially if we specialize it in things that essentially hold us back from, you know, wealth accumulation, things like financial literacy, entrepreneurship, you know, business owners, being spiritual, you know, aspects of being spiritual. So having a connection with the higher power, right? Health, uh, wellness, because as of right now, and as CD fam and yourself said, Mainstream education essentially teaches you how to become an employee and debt slave until you're at retirement age. So they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're literally creating your life for 40 years and you have to live that life. So you, so you uh, assume that you have to. Right. And that's why, you know, you're given that mortgage payment to ensure that you maintain that that nine to five. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, as Claude has said, homeschooling is very important and it's becoming easier to homeschool. Now it's difficult in terms of trying to balance work-life balance if you are trying to work and also do homeschooling. And I understand that. However, there are some tools out there, some things that are starting to develop. So I'm not sure if folks are familiar um, with Professor Karen Hunter and Dr. Greg Carr, but every Saturday um, they have an in-class with Carr where it's live, right? And Dr. Greg Carr is a professor of Africana Studies at Howard University. I think he's the chair, department chair background. He has a PhD and he also has his JD. Um, PhD from Temple, JD, I think it's from Ohio State University. And Professor Karen Hunter, I believe she is a professor at Hunter College in New York City. So if you go to their YouTube page, you'll see all these pieces. But what they're developing, though, which is in the beta stage right now, is called narrative. Narrative is K for knowledge, N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-E, narrative. And it's it's a it's a collection and almost like a, a Netflix, if you will, of all their conversations, the book suggestions that always come up because Dr. Carr has been an extensive reader and has so many books. Um, but it really gets at that whole notion of knowing who we are mm. um, as a people. And 
he was part of writing the Africana Studies or African American History course requirement here in Philadelphia, that curriculum. Um, and by requirement in Philadelphia, I mean public schools, not not in uh, not in private schools, I'll tell you that much. But in public schools, the requirement was, I think, 10th grade year, folks have to take an African-American studies course. Mm. That's the point. And all those pieces there really goes through the Africana ways of um, really approaching subject and learning. And it's really about ways of knowing, ways of being, who are we to each other, who are we to others, to Europeans, et cetera. Um, movement and memory, thinking about a number of different ways of how we can look and expand and explore who we are as a people. And so I would definitely recommend that. Definitely recommend checking them out on Saturdays and going to their YouTube channel and seeing all the things that they talk about. They discuss some heavy topics, but they go deep, mm. deep, 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 deep. And that's the type of thinking we need to do. And that's the type of stuff that we need to build in terms of homeschooling. Now, here's the thing. The only issue is we talk about access to wealth. If you homeschool, you have to make sure that you homeschool in a proper way where you get a, a official transcript and build those pieces out. Sometimes you might have to be a part of a homeschooling association or have some type of network in order for you to have access to other institutions. Because mm. if you homeschool for, let's just say elementary school, and then you want your child to transition into a traditional school, there might be some folks who are like, nah, do you have a transcript? Do you have this? Do you have that? What? So really you have to cross your T's and dot your I's when it comes to homeschooling right? Um, and being an advocate for your child. I definitely think that's key because that's probably my main worry would be that transition and how would you do that academically so that, you know, they, that they would accept you. And we know that it's done and we know that it's capable at an institution like the petty school. So absolutely, you know, it's just one of those things. This, like you said, cross the T's and dot the I's. And, and here's the, here's the sad part because when I, again, when I worked for Swarthmore college, we used to have some folks who applied as homeschoolers. Right. Um, and then you would look at their transcript and see how how rigorous their transcript is. But it's like, usually in the traditional system, you get a letter of recommendation from their teacher. Mm -hmm. Their teacher's mom or dad or somebody out there. So it's like, you have to look at that and take that with a grain of salt. But then when you also think about it, I'm sure there might be racism that comes into play. So you think about homeschooling, right? And you look at this white applicant versus this black applicant. And if you're going to this institution that already is based off a European ide idealism, right, and ideologies, you thinking about homeschooling of a black child from a black home versus homeschooling of a white child from a white home. You need some cultural competency to, to decipher what's going on there or someone bold enough to say, you know what, this person's strong enough. Now, there's ways that you can get through these spaces where you talk about access to wealth. But even those things are stacked against us because you talk about standardized testing. If you get a certain score in a standardized test, then maybe they'll let you in. Right. But again, we already know that standardized testing is just a measure of wealth, not knowledge. Mm. It's a measure of affluence. Do you have the opportunity for prep, et cetera? So there's just so many pieces there. And it's deep. It's deep, man. But, you know, the more and more you talk about, the more and more you see. And sometimes you have more questions than answers. Thousand percent. And Clodis says the importance is diversity and the learning experience, taking the time to homeschool in tandem with the scholar attending school. I think that would be great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And CD Fam had a question about minimum wage. This would be interesting. What should we do to increase the minimum wage and how should we go about that? Well, you have folks who are like, even like, you know, I, th I think it was in his, um, I forgot what it called, but Joe Biden was giving his address. I think it was the day before his 100th day in office. And he was talking about how they need to, you know, raise the minimum wage to 15, I think $15 an hour. Um, you know, it's, it's lobbying, lobbying your, your, your politicians, um, trying to make sure your voice is heard in, in town hall meetings, in, the, in your local municipalities. Um, and sometimes that's actually on a voting ballot. Sometimes those things come up where it's like, are you voting to increase the minimum wage within the state? Because you, you have things that are based within the state, and then you have things that are based federally, with mm. the federal minimum wages. Um, so really thinking about those pieces depending on where you are. Absolutely. And I feel like there are solutions to minimum wage that, you know, which would help both sides, let's say. But I think that would have to be the socialist system where people who would work jobs that uh, were minimum wage would be consideration. They would also have health insurance and benefits as well. So it's kind of like, how, how do you, you know, uh, I guess balance it out? Do you, would you rather have something like universal health care? Then that, that's a possibility than minimum wage kind of kind of goes away a little bit 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Codis also says the foundations need to be taught at home, thousand percent, self awareness and knowledge, so the so they can be comfortable in diverse environments and still understand their own history. Absolutely, being well rounded and the true definition of sophistication. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? And that one, that part, I, I agree a hundred percent. I agree a hundred percent with that. The problem for me, which, which which drives me nuts, is that. White folk don't have to do that. Right. And that's what's so frustrating. It's like, you know, I, I have these conversations all the time. And, you know, again, there are some folks, there are some white folks, you and I know who they are because we've been in the same spaces with them. And they can be in any room because they are of the people. They don't see themselves as being pretentious, privileged, and anything like they they know of their own privileges, but they don't carry themselves as such. And they care to get to know other people's cultures, et cetera. You know, those folks who are more cultured. But for those folks who are in positions of power and privilege, they don't have to do this stuff. So when I talk about like being in a predominantly white institution, how we had to learn to navigate certain spaces, we had to code switch for survival. These other folks don't have to do that. So right. this is even more of a tax on us. It's like we have to learn these things in order for us to be adaptable in certain environments where other folks don't have to. So that's even it's even more of a schooling aspect or preparation for us to survive and exist in certain spaces. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I think are most important is the pull and the seduction of pop culture. If you're not able to, you know, educate your child and essentially uh, train them to see the matrix in real time and understand, you know, what environments as Chloe and yourself are talking about, I think that's the most important. Like, okay, this Mm -hmm. is this is a fad at this period of time. In 20 years, it'll be this thing. And it's still accomplishing the same thing, but it's probably making more money because it's impacting more people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And CD Fam says, I have a question. Have you guys ever watched Prince AI Sue's school system? I would love to see your reaction to that. I have. I've watched it. And I taught a class called Liberation Pedagogy, The Awakening of Critical Consciousness. Mm. And I showed that in the beginning of my class. Wow. And since then, I've done a number of presentations, one of which being using hip hop pedagogy for a framework for diversity, equity, inclusion, and liberation. And to play on that point of, I just sued the school system, you know. So for example, just to, to boil it down, there's, there's probably this comic or cartoon that you've seen before. And it's like, all right, y'all, we're going to measure everyone's knowledge based off of you taking the same test, right? And it's like four different animals. And they're like, climb the tree. There's an elephant. There's a monkey. There's a goldfish. There's a dog. And they're like, climb that tree. We're going we're gonna to test to see if you can. We're going to test your knowledge to see how skillful you are. Now, climb the tree. Point is saying, this one test does not work for all these people. And it doesn't mean that they're not smart or that they're less than, it's just not designed for them. Right. So we think about the school system and what is by design. You know, you think about the school to prison pipeline, you think about how folks were really literally faced forward in desk because they were preparing folks for faculty workers, working on conveyor belts, all this other stuff. But the other piece is this, is that I took that and I also used it. I'm not sure if folks familiar, if CD fam is familiar with Dead Prez, but listening to Dead Prez's um, song, Day Schools. Mm. So go go looking at day schools because I did a presentation at a people of color conference and really talk about the whole difference between schooling and education. And I always talk about how much I hate school, but I love education. I always quote Mark Twain, you know, um, in terms of when he said, I never let my education, my schooling interfere with my education. But really think about day school, dead press, and talking about why the schools aren't designed for us. In fact, they're designed for us to fail or go to jail. Mm-hmm. Um so just keeping those pieces in mind. So yeah, I definitely did see that. And it's definitely a powerful piece. It's got some other stuff too, but that one's definitely a powerful piece. Absolutely. And I'm going to put that on the watch list because I have not seen that yet. And I'm going to check out the Dead Prez Day Schools because mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to hear this on the radio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yes, thank you guys once again for joining us. We had a fantastic show. A lot of wonderful ideas being, you know, essentially being shared and... I think we have a lot of action that we all can take individually and collectively moving forward, which I think is the most exciting aspect about all this. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, each one reach one and each day just try to be better than you were the day before. 
That's all we can do. Amen. Well, it's not all we can do. Right. But that's <laughs> all we should at least do. Bare minimum. And then do more. Absolutely. Bare minimum. So thank you guys. Enjoy your week and have a blessed day. You repeat what they created and get power to hate. But worst of all, we disappoint all the greats. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. Yeah. Hey. Black lives matter.